Heavenly Father, Lord, it's so easy for us to forget that everything we have in this life, everything that we are, is really from you. Father, so often we, we find ourselves saying things like, it's my life, it's my time, it's my stuff, it's my family. <laughs> God, we forget that really it's your stuff and it's your time, it's your life. The people that are part of our family and friends, they, they belong to you too. And In fact, even our very breath is something that you provided for us. Lord, forgive us for our, our arrogance. Forgive us for our lack of consideration when we think that this world and this life is about us. Thank you for moments and times in life where we can pause and realize that there's something far greater and there's someone far greater that's telling our story than us. That there's a plan and a purpose for our life that's bigger than whatever little, small, and, and insignificant plans we might create for ourselves. That, Lord, you are working in us to will and to act your good purpose and your good plan if we're willing and open to allow you to do that. Father, we thank you for opportunities we have to pause in the midst of a busy life and just to gather together with people that love you like we do and just reflect on your word and reflect on life and the purpose of our existence here. And I just pray this morning, Lord, as we open your word, that you might open our hearts to what that word has to say to us. And Lord, we might be convicted, we might be encouraged, we might be challenged, we might be changed. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Every year, thousands of young people gather in a spot generally far from their home with people they've never met before to embark on an adventure that will challenge everything that they've known to be true up until that point. Maybe for a while or maybe just for a short period of time, they, they've dreamed about becoming a part of one of the branches of the U.S. Armed Services. And the first part of joining up, as many of you know because you've been there, is something that's called basic training. And basic training's purpose is simply to do what it says, to give each recruit a basic understanding of what it is required to be a soldier, to be an airman, to be a sailor, to be a Coast Guard person in our, in our, our armed forces and our protective services. And then there's, among those, there's, there's a very, very small percent, less than 1% of those recruits that go through that very strenuous and difficult training that aspire to something bigger. They aspire to be a part of the, of the special forces and whichever brand of service that they're a part of, the Rangers or the SEALs or the Recon Marines. They, they want to they take up that game to a whole nother level. And in order to be a part of that, you've, you've got to have certain qualifications. You've got to have certain aptitude intellectually. You've also got to have a certain physical ability. And almost, in fact, all of those elite programs have their own selection process. The best of the best show up once again the first day of a brand new camp. But that camp is not necessarily there to give you the basic training that you're going to need to be a part of that special forces unit. Generally, that training is there to select qualified versus not qualified candidates. Now, if you look at all these guys, they all look to be absolutely amazing people, right? They're generally, all of them in the 
peak of physical health. They're strong. They're all smart. They've all got great scores on their ASBABs and other tests that they're given. They've all, they're all motivated because they've worked and they've applied themselves and they've made the connections and they've risen to the top of their classes. But less than 20, in some classes, 10% of those students will complete that particular training. Navy SEALs training for, is one I know a little bit about. I read a book a while ago about that, a guy who did that his whole life. He said that in most classes, it was somewhere between 85 and 95 or 90% attrition. These people want this. They've trained for it. They're ready for it, but they don't finish. Now, many times, it's because there's physical injury. They blow out a knee, or they have back problems, or shoulder issues, or simply they get the flu, and, and it's, they're just too weak to carry on. But of those who remain healthy, this particular SEAL instructor said that almost every time, what broke down was not their body or their intellect. What broke down was not their preparation or their ability to run. What broke was their mind. Brothers and sisters, throughout the first part of this year, we've been taking a look at a series of messages called Battle Ready. We've been taking a look at the fact that that the war is real and, and that God has called us to be prepared to answer that call no matter where it might come, as we saw in the first sermon series from Matthew 25. We've taken a look at two integral parts of being prepared, prayer and Bible study, and the importance of understanding the Word of God and internalizing the Word of God, and also the importance of going to God in prayer and having that relationship, that communication with Him to strengthen us and to encourage us. This morning, we're going to talk about four things that are required for us to finish the race. The truth is, and the beauty about the cross is that, that everyone's welcome to come. You don't have to have a particular score. You don't have to be of a particular intellect. You don't have to be strong, strapping, handsome, beautiful. You can be the least of the least. In fact, Jesus talked about and said, I was called to the least of these. And Jesus spent much time working with people that the rest of society marginalized. But let me understand, let me tell you something this morning. I don't care how you came to Christ. God doesn't want you to stay that way. There's a lot of people that have come to Christ broken and messed up wrecks. But when we allow God to work in our life, He transforms us and makes us into something amazing. In our training program, God is in our corner, and that is an awesome thing. When you have God, you have everything, right? Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. But let me tell you, there is another entity that is out and against us, and that entity wants to wear you down, wants to break you apart, wants to destroy us. And so often, we like to ignore the fact that not only is there a good, loving, and gracious God in the world, but there is a dark, evil, and dangerous Satan in the world. Jesus spends time talking about both. And to believe in one is that we have to believe in the other. A lot of people say, well, I don't know, Jason, if I really buy this whole devil business. Jesus did. Jesus told us as much as we really going to ever know about Satan in limited terms. Jesus took him very seriously. And we should too. Now, before I jump in my lesson this morning, I, I want to I say something. Because I don't want us to leave here today and give power to Satan that isn't his. 
The Bible says that greater is God. Greater is he that is in us. Greater is the spirit. If you're a Christian here today, the Holy Spirit's within you. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We have the ability to overcome Satan in each and every situation. If you were here last week, we talked about that. We finished with that passage of scripture that says that, that, in, that when we're tempted, look for that way of escape. Look for that opportunity to go out that you might get through it. And that's the key. How do we get through life still standing? How do we finish this race still on our feet? There may be seasons and times that we will crawl. But God has given us tools to help us finish this race. And this morning, we're going to take a look at four things. Four simple things. None of these are going to be extraordinary to any of you here today. You all are going to know every one of these. But these are four things that all of us must have, we have to have, in order to finish the race standing where God has called us to stand. You might remember Paul writing in Ephesians, the sixth chapter. He's talking about the armor of God. But before he does that, in verses 11, 12, and 13, he says this, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes... When it comes, not if, right? I just wanted to point that out. Sometimes we think, well, I don't know. Is it, it's going to come. There's going to be challenging days. Today might be your challenging day. You might have had a challenging day last week. It may be one that's yet to come. The day of evil, the day of struggle is going to come. And so he says, when that day of evil comes, you will be able to stand your ground. See, here's a beautiful thing. Guys, we are not about winning the battle. Just, just know this this morning. The battle has been won at the cross. Jesus destroyed the enemy at the cross. We're not out fighting to win. We're just instructed to stay on our feet. We're instructed to hold our position. We're instructed to carry the banner into this world. God is the one who is winning the war. Paul reminds us of this. He says, so you'll be, do, be able to do or be able to stand your ground and having done everything to stand, stand firm then, and then he goes on and talks about the armor of God. Paul, in one sentence, uses the word stand three times. He said, we need to stand our ground. Having done everything to stand, so then stand. Paul's trying to get a point across right here, church. He's saying, I want you to stand. I want you to be on your feet. I want you to be ready and prepared for what's coming. And so we're going to look at these four things. They're conviction, character, compassion, and competence. These four things that happen to start with a C. Maybe you can remember them. Probably you won't. But maybe they will help you. I know they will help you to finish the race that life has set out before us on your feet. The truth is, is that every one of us here today are on a similar journey, but every one of us here today are on very different paths on that journey. Some of us have struggled through things that others of us haven't. For instance, some of us have gone through a very difficult divorce, while others of us have had a good marriage. Some of us have dealt with debilitating diseases, while others of us have been relatively healthy to an old age. Some of us have dealt with financial chaos in our lives, while others of us have been relatively comfortable our whole lives. And still others have had to wrestle with a, with a wayward child or son or daughter, and maybe some of the rest of us have grown kids and grown grandkids that all are still with us in the Lord and in the church. We all have different struggles, but we're all called to do the same thing, and that's stand. And the first thing that we're going to have to have in order to stand is a deep sense of conviction. 
Paul writes Timothy this in 2 Timothy 1 and verses 13 and 14. There'll be a fair bit of scripture today. We'll just try to read through it quickly. If you want, you can keep up. A lot of it's in your sermon handout. He said, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me. In faith and in the love that are in Christ Jesus, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Paul recognized something I just want to start off with this morning as we have this conversation. And he realized that that when you have an opportunity to know about the Word of God, most, in fact, all of us in this room this morning have been given the opportunity to know that there's a loving God who sent His Son to die for us. Most of us have heard that message so much that it's almost become mundane. And that's a tragedy. Paul said, I want you to recognize that there's a a deposit that's been made in you. There's been something deep that's been entrusted to you. And when you've been entrusted with something precious, you you carry that with a certain amount of, of, of excitement, a certain amount of intensity, a certain amount of conviction. There may be some of us that are here sitting in the in the seats today. When we look at our life, we really don't know what we're here for. We, we, we wondered, maybe, maybe God wanted me to do this, and then that season of life passed, or, or maybe something that we really felt called to do just never really materialized, and we wondered, what is my purpose? You know, guys, one, I think one of the most important things that we can be convinced of in life is that we are here for a reason. Every single one of you that are here this morning have been put in this life for a reason. You've heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and yet God has left you behind in your family and friends and in the workplaces. Every one of those relationships, every one of those experiences, every one of those opportunities is a place for you to do something. We are called to be a light in the darkness. We are called to bear witness of the greatness of Jesus Christ. We are called to share the message of the good news, not some formalized religion, but an understanding an embodiment of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to share that with people. And we need, to, we need to understand that with a certain amount of conviction, with a certain amount of passion, with a certain amount of enthusiasm, not just ho-hum, yeah, I go to church. Yeah, yeah, Jesus died for me. That's a good thing, you know, because I'm a real wreck. Sometimes we're like that. We don't realize that we've been entrusted with something beautiful, something precious, something that costs God's son his life. There's a difference in life, guys, between preference and conviction. A lot of times I think that we we don't realize this, but I think a lot of us have preferences towards things of Christ, but not convictions for things of Christ. A a preference is, is, well, it's it's something that that can be changed. Yeah, I I prefer A, B, or C, but but I I might be shifted on that. I prefer Chinese food, or I prefer... Mexican. I prefer Chevrolets or I prefer Fords. I prefer one brand versus another brand. I like Post Toasties and I don't like the store brand or whatever the case is. We have a preference. And a lot of us, when we look at religion, we say, you know what? This is my preference. My preference is to go to Forest Park or my preference is this particular thing. I prefer one of these other options. Conviction. Conviction is very different. Conviction says, I have looked at the facts and have determined that the thing that I am doing is the right thing to do. Guys, that's a very, very different attitude. If I prefer 
community coffee, which indeed I do prefer, all right? But I go somewhere up north, and they serve me Folgers coffee, which they will if you go up north, all right? Just warning. You won't even know it's coffee. You guys will think it's tea, but it is coffee, all right? Um, I'm still going to drink the Folgers coffee. You know why? Well, I prefer community coffee. I don't like the Folgers coffee. I kind of think it tastes like dirt and water. If you like Folgers, please forgive me this morning, all right? Um, uh, but, but I'm going to drink the coffee because it's better than nothing. Right? That's my preference. But if I have a conviction, if I am convicted that the only coffee worth drinking is community coffee. <laughs> so, can I hear an amen? Yeah, that's all right. If I'm convicted that there is no other coffee worthy of my palate than community coffee, when other coffees are provided to me, I'm not going to drink it. Guys, sometimes when it comes to our faith in God, we, we have preferences, but not convictions. We have ideals, but they're not something we're willing to dig into, to stand on and say, no, this is right. Now, I want, to, I, want, I want to tell you that not everything that we do within the church has to be a, something of conviction, but many things in the church are things of conviction. The order of our service, that's preference. How we, how we maybe dress, you can wear a suit coat, you don't have to wear a suit coat. I think just Bruce and I wear suit coats anymore, but, uh, but uh, we, we're holding our line, huh, Bruce? Um, but you can wear a suit coat, you don't have to wear a suit coat, that's preference. But when it comes down to what the Word of God says, this is where it's no longer preference. If Jesus says that a certain lifestyle is sinful, a certain lifestyle has to be sinful. We, we didn't write the book. If Jesus said you've got to forgive those who do bad things against you, even if I hate it, which I do sometimes, I struggle with that personally, I still have to forgive people because God told me to. Those are convictions. There's a lot of things that will change preferences. Peer pressure, family pressure, lawsuits, jail time. The threat of death. But there's nothing in the world that shifts us from our convictions. Oftentimes Bruce and others mention, and I appreciate that every time, that the persecuted church in the world. You guys know, I mean, we're sitting this morning in this warm, maybe too warm, but a warm church building here this morning. We've got a nice dry roof. We have a beautiful sound system, talented singers. We have nice cushy seats we made sure we got the really cushy ones, you know. Uh, we have, we rode here in beautiful, clean, nice, well, maybe your car's not clean and nice, but you rode here in a car that kept the water off your head. You didn't have to ride a bicycle, most of us. Guys, in, in the world today, we're, we're the exception, not the rule. There's Christians right now that are serving in places like China and India who, who are gathered together in small, dark, quiet places singing muted tones, fearing for their life, because if they're caught, the punishment is something we'd rather not think about. You don't go to church in that kind of a situation on a preference. You gather together with the rest of the believers in your little town or in your neighborhood in the bottom of a house in quietness because you are convicted that they are your brothers and sisters in Christ and that you need to encourage them and support them and help them. You are absolutely certain that what you're doing is worth the price of your life. Americans today, we, we oftentimes don't have that kind of conviction. Paul did. 
Maybe that's why I have so many text or verses from my text today come from 2 Timothy, because this is kind of Paul's swan song. He's writing this to Timothy, a young man who he's close to, and Paul is certain that he is about to die. And there's so much energy and enthusiasm in this text. As I read through it in these last few weeks, I, I've just been encouraged by it. He writes this in 2 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 17. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Notice that word. I don't have time to to dig on all this this morning, but notice that phrase there, firmly believed. He's talking about convictions, not just something you prefer, but something you know to be true, something you're willing to die on, a hill that you're willing to die on. He said, continue in those things that you've learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from early childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Right now, as we're doing church in here this morning, there's a whole bunch of kids that are in a children's building, and they're with, with volunteers that are in there, and they're teaching them the word. Now, it's a much different kind of class. I hate to break this to you. They get snacks, all right? I know. We would do a lot better on Sunday morning if I gave you all snacks, but, um, but uh, they're over there, and they're learning about the word of God, and those people are, are investing in them, and they're doing that because they realize that sometimes we pick up the most valuable lessons in life before we're five or six or seven or 10 years old. When we're children, we're, our minds are open, and, 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 and those Bible lessons find a home in our heart, and they, they, they shape our convictions and our lifestyle choices from that point forward. And then Paul goes on to that famous part of this passage where he says, all scripture is breathed by God and it's profitable for teaching, for for reproof, excuse me, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. We often miss that kind of preface passage above that where Paul is just saying, hang in there, Timothy. Stay firm on your convictions. We don't use that word much anymore. But we need to be people that are convinced that what we're doing is right. And if we're not convinced, then we need to get back into the Word and figure out why am I doing what I'm doing, right? We need to sit down with people who who we respect and say, hey, explain this to me. Why are we doing this? Why is this important? Why does the Word of God say this? How do I justify this with other things that I read or I think? What is right? What is wrong? We need not be intellectually lazy. We need to do the hard work and make that happen. Anthony Capolo tells a story of a of a church camp that made a huge difference in the life of the students that went there. There was a boy that, that, that attended that camp that was, had a profound problem with speech. And, and it was very, very difficult for him to get out sentences. And it was a kind of an advanced form of stuttering, if you can imagine that. Each and every phrase and sentence was, was broken up by his attempts to force air through his larynx. And every thought and word that he said required a great deal of mental energy to be able to get it out. And you, you know how it is with kids in junior high. There's no more hateful bunch of kids in the world than junior high. I mean, oh, they will, they will make fun and they'll ridicule and they'll pick. It's because, well, there's a lot of things going on. We, we're not quite mentally mature at that point. We're, we're, pretty, we're pretty rough on each other. And Anthony was at this camp, and he was watching. Here, this little kid comes to this, this summer camp, and all the other kids marginalize him first because he can't jump into those conversations. He already feels a little bit awkward, and they mock him most of the times behind his back, but sometimes to his face, his speech problem. He couldn't do it. So one night, they had devotions, and all the kids got together, and they thought, eh, this will be good. They chose this little fella, 
to do the evening devotion. Now, you know junior high school kids. All of us, don't don't you guys look at me like you don't know junior high school kids. All of y'all have a little junior high school kid left in you. I'm at men's prayer breakfast on Tuesday mornings, and sometimes the junior high school kid comes out of people you wouldn't believe, all right? We all have a little junior high schooler in us, and you know that, all right? And you know all them boys are sitting around, and they're thinking, this is going to be good right here, right? They picked him for two reasons. One thing is, he's not going to run on like if they picked me, right? Jason, he's going to talk 35 minutes. They just wanted to get up and do their thing. The other thing they thought of, this is going to be entertaining. How are we going to get the kid that can't even form a sentence to do a devotion? Well, they called him, and you might think that little fellow would say, but no, no, he stood up, full of confidence. His devotion is probably the shortest devotion you've ever heard in your life. He managed to cough out, I'm not going to try to reproduce his speech problem, but he managed to cough out this sentence in in a long period of time. Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. And then he sat down. Anthony said that as he watched, all those boys that had been giggling and laughing thought it was so funny. (laughs) All of a sudden, their eyes began to fill with tears. And he said, even to this day, as he wrote this, he said, I meet young men that were at that camp that are in ministry today because of that young man's statement. It's not that the statement's that radical, right? Jesus loves me. I love Jesus. All of us know that. But it was the conviction that that young man spoke it with. It was determination. It was the soul within him that it just spilled out and they couldn't help but be moved by it. Guys, can we develop that kind of passion for the Lord today? The world needs that. They need us to know, the world needs to know that we don't just think this is some other kind of religious experience. They need to know that this is serious to me. This defines me. This makes me who I am. I have a ton more sermons, so we're going to have to roll on quickly. Second thing is character. Character. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking on this today because we talk a lot about character. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. C.S. Lewis says, surely what a man does when he is taken off guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. If there are rats in the cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness does not create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of provocation does not make a man ill-tempered. It just shows me what an ill-tempered man I already am. C.S. Lewis realized something, that, that, that in those moments that we all call our bad moments of life, those, those moments where things kind of hit us out of left field, when we think everything's going perfectly, and then all of a sudden it's not, it's in those moments that our true character is revealed. Our true nature becomes evident. It's in those moments where the kind of person we really are is really on display. Paul writes this to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. 
Rather, train yourself in godliness. Paul uses this really kind of important phrase right here. He says, but train yourself in godliness. We know what training is. We live in a culture today where we're very obsessed with training. If you're going to be a, a musician, you go into a specified course of training. If you're going to be an athlete, you go into a specified course of instruction designed to achieve something. Paul said, train yourself in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, and there's nothing wrong with that, we should be healthy physically, right? And we know that. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds province for the pre- promise for the present life and also for the one to come. So Paul is saying, okay, it's good if you go out for a run every week. It's good if you go to the gym a few times a week and, and, and pump, some, pump some iron. It's good if you do some cardio. It's good if you watch what you eat. Those are all good things to do. It's of some value. You're going to have a better quality of life. If, as you know, you're going to live longer, which is good. But Paul said, don't neglect training yourself in godliness. Don't neglect your character. Because... The benefits of a great character aren't just in this life. You know, I mean, like eventually, no matter how good you take care of yourself, no matter how many supplements you take, no matter how many broccoli, uh, uh, whatever those things are, broccoliettes that you eat in your life, no matter how many steaks you avoid and chicken breasts you eat, eventually the body's going to break down. You're going to go be with the Lord, right? It's appointed once once. It's appointed to every man once to die and then judgment. We know it's coming. But Paul said character, character is that thing that follows you, not just in this life, but into the next as well. Now, we all have values this morning. Values are simply social norms. They're things that everybody has. Um, Even criminals have values, (laughs) believe it or not. The question you must ask yourself is, what are the principles that my values are based on? What are those underlying bedrocks of truth that define my character and make me who I am? Many Christians have a value system that's more of a collection of conflicting ideas than it is a real foundation for a lifestyle that God admires. That's why Jesus tells that quick parable about, about two men who built a house, one of them who built his house in the sand on the seashore, one of them who dug down and built his house in the rock. And Jesus said there's a very different outcome for those two guys. So what is your character this morning? Will Rogers was once doing a, a uh, comedy routine, and Will Rogers was known to make people laugh years ago. He was doing a comedy routine in a, in a clinic in Los Angeles, California, that dealt mostly with people who were trying to overcome the effects of polio and the effects of, of bad accidents. So these are very, very uh, disabled persons. And, and Will Rogers is doing his routine, and he's getting everyone in the room laughing, you know, because he's funny. Unlike me, he's funny, tells a joke, everyone busts up laughing. Even the weakest, even the most broken people are, are rolling because he's just good at what he does. And he had a gift to engage a crowd of people. <laughs> this is Will Rogers is doing his routine. Somewhere in the middle of the routine, he said, I gotta take a moment. And he steps off stage, And he goes into the restroom. And his manager, who was going with him, thought, man, maybe he needs a towel. Maybe he needs a drink of water. He walks into the bathroom, and he finds Will Rogers up against the wall of the bathroom, weeping, weeping like a child. All the while, he had been out there doing his thing, making the crowds laugh, seeing the joy come off of people's faces. He also recognized the profound brokenness of the people that were in that room. A few minutes later, he gets up, He goes back out, and he continues his act. 
you want to learn what a person is really like, whether that's you or somebody else, young people, if you're looking for somebody, you think, man, I, I might want to spend the rest of my life with this person. Character is critical. You can look at three areas of their life. What makes them laugh? What makes them angry? And what makes them cry? What makes them weep? The kinds of things that make us laugh tell us a lot about who we are, right? Paul says, don't, don't, don't get yourself involved in coarse humor. But we often laugh and laugh at that stuff. It's funny, right? What makes us angry? Jesus says, get angry, but don't sin. Jesus got angry, but his anger was focused in a proper direction. What makes us weep? When Jesus was here, he, he cried over Jerusalem. He said, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, I would love to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. If you want a great example of what perfect character looks like, here's what you should do. Get your Bible and just read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Understand the life of Jesus. Understand the person of Jesus. Ingest that story until you know exactly how Jesus would respond in a situation, how Jesus would react to a certain stimulus, how Jesus would walk in a certain area, how Jesus would reach out to a certain group of people. It is possible. Generations of people have done that. Know Christ so well that you know exactly how he would respond and then do that. And you have the kind of character that God wants you to have. Horace Greenley, the great newspaper editor and writer years ago, wrote this, and it's something you guys have heard before. He says, fame is a vapor, popularity an accident. Riches take wing, and only one thing endures, and that's character. We're going to roll quickly through the last two of these. Number three is compassion. I wish I probably should have a whole other sermon, and sometime at some point in the head we will, a whole other sermon just on the subject of compassion. We are called to be people who have compassion. And Psalms 103 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. J.C. Watts wrote this. He said, Compassion can't be measured in dollars and cents. It does come with a price tag, however. But that price tag isn't the amount of money spent. The price tag is is love. How much do we really love the people that we live in this life with? Paul asks that question in the first part of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, and he says, you can be one of the greatest, and he creates this hyperbole situation here of people who, who were the greatest in every area, intellectually, they were the greatest philanthropists, they were the greatest speakers and orators, but he said, if you don't have love, you're a clanging gong, a, a ringing cymbal. You're just a ruckus in a world full of ruckus. What does it mean to be people who have compassion? We started off this series in the first part of Matthew, the 25th chapter, in that first little section there where the girls were waiting for the wedding feast. Five were ready, five were not. Five had oil and five did not. But in the last part of Matthew 25 is another parable. In fact, through this whole area, Jesus is just telling stories. And that parable is, is about the very end of time. It says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will gather all the nations and He will separate people one from another as the shepherd separate, separates the sheep from the goats. We're, we're talking about the great judgment right here, right? And He says, then the king will say to those on His right, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then notice what Jesus chooses to use as the qualifiers for them to get into this. And we know that obviously it's purchased for us by the blood of Christ. But in this parable, Jesus says, for you, I was hungry, you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you came and visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer, and they'll say, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I don't have time this morning to fully develop this section, but I think all of you can figure this out very quickly from this text. Each and every single attribute that Jesus mentioned, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat, thirsty, you gave me something to drink, stranger, invited me in, naked, and you clothed me, sick or in prison, and you came to visit me. Every single one of those attributes require one thing in order for us to be faithful in that moment, and that is compassion. If you're not looking for people in need, you'll never see people in need. You know how that is? We, we see what we're looking for. Ever, ever got a new car? You got a brand new Toyota or whatever it was. You never saw one of those Toyotas before, but you got a new Toyota or someone you knew got a new car, and all of a sudden they're just everywhere. You guys notice that? Like, like I, I didn't really notice there's many Volkswagens in the world until Kelsey got a Volkswagen. Now I see Volkswagens everywhere. Uh, and, and, and that's exactly how life is. Sometimes we don't see needs because we're not looking for them. We don't see needs because we need to activate that compassion that is within each and every one of us. There's four questions that you would want to ask yourself that are going to help you become a more compassionate person. Number one, how do I exhibit compassion in my daily life? There should be compassion shown every day if we're living like God called us to live. What are some areas that I do that? Number two, what can I do to develop a better attitude of compassion? Sometimes I'm impatient, and impatience is cancer to pet compassion. Because I want things to happen right now. And sometimes you have to take a step back, take a deep breath, and be willing to invest that time. What blocks my compassion from working? Is it fear? A lot of us are afraid. I'm afraid to get involved. I'm afraid to help out. I'm, I'm afraid to get my hands dirty in this person's mess. Aren't you guys glad that Jesus wasn't afraid to get his hands dirty in our mess? How can I make compassion function better? even in times of uncertainty or stress. Some of us are pretty compassionate until we're stressed or we're scared. And then, all of a sudden, compassion goes out the window. It's me and my family. I've heard people say that before. Guys, we've got to gut check those things. How can I become compassionate even when the world's crazy around me? I think there's two ways that we can all learn to become more compassionate, and we're going to quickly roll through these as well. Number one, learn to listen. People are asking all the time. We just need to learn to listen, to pick up on what they're asking for. Listen to their pain. Watch for their discomfort. Become aware of the little signs that people almost always are continually giving off, that they're unsure, that they're afraid, they're confused, or they're defeated. And number two, learn to look at people through God's eyes. (laughs) I like to look at people through Jason's eyes. They're going to take from me. They're going to absorb time. They're going to use resources. That's not how God looks at people. He sees them as harassed and helpless, like sheep who need a shepherd. We're going to close with the last of these four things, and that is simply competence. I don't have much to say about it. Once again, I guess you could have preached a sermon about all these. Maybe I should have done a series. But competence, simply that ability of being ready to answer the call that we've been given. And we're going to sing in a moment this morning, and 
And as we do that, I, I hope that hope we realize that in so many ways, none of us are competent to stand before God and open our mouths and praise him. We have no right to be where we are in the presence of God. We have no right to say, I'm looking forward to an eternity in heaven. I have a father who is in heaven. Those aren't our rights, but those have been gifted to us. We've been given this beautiful opportunity to stand and to praise God. First, 2 Corinthians 3, it says this in verses 4 and 5. Such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God. Our confidence, our confidence comes through Christ. Never forget that. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. Just the moment that you think that you have something really to offer to the world is about that moment, if you're Jason Quarter, that God's going to clip your knees out from underneath and you're going to realize that you really don't have anything to offer, that there's always somebody better, somebody more talented, somebody more gifted, somebody more eloquent, somebody more knowledgeable. Paul said it's not that we have really anything of value to give, but our sufficiency is from God. So here's a beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. This morning, you, you, aren't, you aren't able to stand because you're so tough or you're so macho. There's not a one of us that could really stand in the face of Satan and win that fight. He is an amazingly powerful being. But God has made you so. God has put his spirit within you. God has empowered you and given you the ability to be the kind of person that can stand up under the pressure that life throws at every single one of us. Jesus was an absolutely amazing leader. He was an effective communicator. He was a powerful leader. He knew what it was like to forgive. He knew how to rebuke and correct people in, in a way that would bring them closer to God or, or at least reveal their true heart's intentions. He, he had a heart for healing people or just knowing how to simply spend time with them. Jesus isn't just holy. He was intelligent. He was capable. Jesus wasn't just good. He was good at it. You name it, he was good at it. Jesus wasn't just nice. He was a brilliant thinker. And guys, God has given us that same opportunity. And we're never going to be on the level of Jesus. But we're called to walk the way that Jesus walked. We're called to think like Jesus thought. And you'll be amazed as you begin to develop that character. When you begin to have conviction. When you begin to love and have compassion. The competence just comes. You look back and say, I don't know how I, I don't know how I handled that situation. I, I don't even know why I said those words to that person. And I said to that person, I just felt like that was the right thing to say at the time. I, I didn't really know how to respond, so I just I tried to love them the best that I could. And you're gonna see that God takes our feeble and broken efforts and does beautiful, beautiful things with those broken efforts. Guys, we've been given an opportunity to stand. So let's stand. The world may blow hard. The forces of evil may come against us strong. But the one who gives us strength has given us the strength to stand through all of it, no matter what it is. So that on the day that we are in his presence, we can stand before that throne of grace with confidence, not in arrogance, but recognizing that he loved us enough to take away our sin that he cared enough about us, that he imparted his spirit to be one with our spirit, and that he loves us enough to call us his own children and to use us as his hands and his feet in a 
broken and hurting world. That's our job, church. Let's do our job. Let's stand. What do you say? Let's stand together this morning. And let's sing to the one who loved us enough to give everything.